Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Many of you have probably never heard of John Avant, nor probably many of you have ever heard of Coggin Avenue Baptist Church in Brownwood, Texas. Um, I've heard John Avant speak on a few occasions, and he's given an account of this, but I want to let you know about an event of God's outpouring that happened in 1995 among college campuses across America. It was January 22nd, 1995, Coggin Avenue Baptist Church, Sunday morning service, typical to what we're having this morning. At the end of the worship service, two college students from Howard Payne University stood up and began confessing sin. They began weeping. And what happened was other college students began to come up and confess sins, and it it went on for three and a half hours of just pouring out their confession to God. This launched a revival that lasted many weeks at the church where most of their worship services were three or four hours long. And John Avant was a little concerned that Sunday night when he came back to worship for his Sunday night service because you never know what's going to happen, how people are going to take an outpouring of God's Spirit. And so a senior adult approached him and he's thinking, oh no, what's the senior adult going to say to me? And the senior adult said, This is so awesome. I've been praying for revival for 40 years. And God did something. And so what ended up happening was a revival poured out in that small town in Texas. A man from the community who was a prominent man who was close to committing suicide ended up repenting and getting saved. Marriages that were two days from filing divorce and and disintegrating reconciled and came together. This launched a a movement across a lot of college campuses, non-denominational across our nation. It hit the Nazarene University in Illinois, a Moorhead State College in Kentucky, Wheaton College in Chicago, Criswell College in Dallas, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. In May, John Avon went to Southwestern Seminary and began to preach in chapel, and for seven hours, seminary professors came confessing sins. Seminary students came confessing sin, and God poured this revival out. And I think that it's probably the closest thing we've seen in our generation in recent history in America of a genuine revival and outpouring of God's Spirit among a group of people. It was non-denominational, it started among college students, and it spread in the mid-90s. Now let's ask a question. What exactly is revival? What exactly is spiritual awakening? Because I can, I can make a statement here, and I think I'm pretty accurate. I dare say that most of us in this room, sitting here, have never experienced a true spiritual outpouring in revival. Most of us have probably never experienced. So let me begin by saying what revival is not. Revival is not a scheduled meeting that happens out in a tent. You can't schedule a revival. You can't put it on your calendar and say, come next week to our revival. You can't schedule it. You can't plan it. You can't manufacture it. It's not some guy in a white suit with slick back hair spitting on people on the sawdust trail and all this weird stuff that you see on Christian television. That's not revival. You can't plan it. You can't organize it. You can't manufacture it. You and I can't do it. But how do you know you're experiencing it when it happens? John Blanchard has said this, Revival cannot be planned. It is a divine interruption. I love his terminology there. It's a divine interruption. It's where God comes and interrupts normal Christianity and gives intense times of spiritual blessing upon his people where the Holy Spirit falls in power. It's an amazing thing to be part of true revival and spiritual awakening. You can't put it on the calendar. You can't say, next week, come to our revival. God is sovereign over it, but there's two things that we can do in regards to revival. Number one, we can pray. 
We can pray for revival. And number two, we can posture ourselves for revival. We can get ourselves in a posture to be prepared that if God's so pleased to bless us with revival, we're ready for it. We can pray and we can posture ourselves for revival. Jonathan Edwards said this, when God has something very great for his church, it, will, it is his will that there should be preceding it the extraordinary prayers of his people. See, one thing I didn't tell you about that Coggan Avenue Baptist Church revival is that the church had spent seven weeks in intense prayer before God broke through in that moment. Seven weeks of agonizing, intense prayer. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen Nehemiah from the very beginning weeping, mourning over the state of Jerusalem in a season of of mourning and crying out to God. We've seen the people on numerous occasions, almost in every chapter, they are praying, they are coming before God. And they've rebuilt the wall. As we've seen a few weeks ago, there was external opposition. Last week, there was internal opposition. And now, 52 days is all it took them. It's amazing. 52 days, they build the wall. And at the end of chapter 6, we find out that the wall is complete, the people are excited, the enemies are afraid, and they stand up and they say, God has done this. And then in Nehemiah chapter 7, God moves Nehemiah to count the people in a census for a genealogy, all those that came back to uh, Jerusalem after the wall was rebuilt. So, So it's a nice happy ending, right? The wall's rebuilt, the people are back, it's a Brady Bunch ending that that wraps up in 30 minutes, right? Isn't that where Nehemiah should end? It should end at chapter 7, right? The the wall's rebuilt. What's there left to talk about? Well, as we'll see, there's actually a bunch more chapters. Because the book of Nehemiah is not just about the physical rebuilding of a wall. It's about the spiritual rebuilding of a people. And God wants nothing more than to bring revival to these people. So we're going to launch into something that I think is very excited. I'm excited to preach this. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, you and I will see a full-blown revival of epic proportions. If there ever was a revival in the Bible, it is in Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10. So we're going to see over the next three weeks what revival looks like. And I I think it will help us to to begin praying for revival, to see what God does during times of revival, to excite us to see that God can do revival. And so here's the thing that, that often happens. I think most people pray for revival, don't we? Let's pray for revival. We need revival. Let's pray for revival. And I think generically we know what we're talking about when we pray for revival. But what specifically does it look like? When revival comes, what does it look like? How do we know we're in a season of revival? What are the marks of a revival? What does it look like to be in a time of spiritual awakening? If none of us have ever experienced it before, how do we know we're in it? And what we see in Nehemiah chapters 8, Nehemiah chapter 9, and chapter 10 are three distinguishing marks of genuine revival. We're going to look at the first mark this morning. It's in chapter 8. What does it look like when God, in His grace, brings revival? And so here it is. Mark number one. You know you're in revival. You know God has brought spiritual awakening when this happens. There is a recovery of the authority and hunger and passion for God's Word. Now, it sounds very basic, doesn't it? A recovery of the authority, the supremacy, the the primacy, the hunger for God's Word. I would say this, and and I'm a student of revivals. I've got a lot of books in my office on revival. I've read church history about revival. I've studied revival for many years. I'm not an expert on it, but I can say with authority that I've read a lot about it. And no period in history, even in the Bible or in church history, has there been a revival when God's Word has not been central. So it doesn't surprise us that the first thing we're going to see here is it all comes back to the importance of God's holy word, the scriptures. So this morning from Nehemiah chapter 8, what I want us to do is I want us to see four characteristics of revival that stem from a recovery of God's word. If somebody tells you there is a revival going on in the world and God's word is not central, do not believe them. It always centers back to a recovery of God's authoritative word. Let's see this unfold in Nehemiah chapter 8. And this is some amazing stuff. Verse 1. 
And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and of those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And behind, behind him, or beside him, stood, and bear with me as I try to pronounce these names, Medathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. On his right hand, and Pedaiah, Misael, Milkajah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Mazaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peleiah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Here's the first thing that we see in times of genuine revival, an insatiable hunger for God's word. An insatiable hunger for God's word. Now let me define the word insatiable for you. Insatiable means you can't get enough. You are hungry for it. You cannot be satisfied with it. You want to devour the word of God. You want more and more and more of God's word. There is an insatiable hunger for it. Notice how we see this insatiable hunger. How does chapters 1 and 2 describe the people? All the people gathered as one man, both old and young, all who could understand. The entire nation gathered together as one people to hear the word of God. Now, some scholars believe it was between 30 to 50,000 people that showed up here. This is a big worship service, 50,000 people. It wasn't just a few people here and there that were just excited about Jesus. It wasn't a few people here or there that had a hunger for God's word. This was a national movement among the whole people where they were hungry. And notice what they do. They're the ones that initiate the worship service. They are the ones that go get Ezra. They go get Ezra and say, Ezra, come to us and read us the Bible. They go seek out the preacher to begin the worship service. The preacher doesn't have to go house to house and drag people to come listen to him. They go get him. It would be like this. This would be amazing. The entire town of Sterling shows up at the fairgrounds on a Sunday morning, the entire town, and people go out looking for the preachers. They go to the Brian Church, and they come here, and they go to First Baptist, and they go to the Foursquare. They go around. Bring the preachers so that we can hear the preaching of God's word and the entire town has gathered there and said preacher we want to hear it now we know we're not in times of revival because that ain't happening where the entire town is saying bring the preachers out to preach there's a widespread hunger for God's word but I want you to notice something else how long did they read from the word verse 3 and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Early morning until midday. Probably what most scholars believe, 6 o'clock in the morning until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Anybody here want to be part of a nine-hour worship service? 
we get upset when it goes longer than it's supposed to go. Nine hours. Nine hours. Nobody complained. Nobody said, Ezra, you've gone on long enough. Nobody got upset. Nobody was irritated. Nobody looked at their watches and said, you know what? I bet you the Bereans are beating us to Bamboo Gardens. I bet you First Baptist has got us at Village Inn. We better speed this thing up, Pastor Sean. Nine hours. And notice what the text says in verse 3. And all the ears of the people were attentive. It was this idea that their ears stretching out to hear. They were hanging on every word coming from the mouth of Ezra because he was reading from the word of God. Now, I can, I, I can tell you again, I've read a lot about revivals. I've studied revival from the scriptures. I've studied revival from church history. And let me tell you what often happens in times of revival. Not the weird stuff you see on Christian television. Not barking like dogs and acting real crazy. What happens during times of revival is just the exact opposite. In times of revival, there is a stillness that comes over the congregation. There's no coughing. People's bladders seem to work. They don't get up and go to the bathroom. People aren't playing games on their phones or checking their Facebook or getting updates on Twitter or balancing their checkbook. In times of revival, people are on the edge of their seat with a stillness waiting to hear from God because when this word is open, God is speaking to his people and there's a hunger. There's a stillness. There's a quietness. There's an expectancy. The closest thing I can, the only time I've ever experienced this was something that happened in our old building. Many of you were there. It was a hot July Sunday. And if you remember that old building, we had to power that building like, like crazy to get the air conditioning to work. And I think the air conditioning was just working a little bit too hard. And on a Sunday morning, I think I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark. All of a sudden, the power goes out in the building. You remember that? The lights go out. It's a preacher's worst nightmare. I'm up here preaching, and the lights go out. And in that old building, there wasn't a lot of natural lighting, so it got very dark. And so I think somebody, I don't remember who it was, gently came up to me and gave me a flashlight, and I finished the sermon in complete darkness with the flashlight. And here's the amazing thing as a pastor. Nobody panicked. No kids screamed. Nobody wiggled. It was the most calm, relaxing experience I've ever experienced in Emmanuel Baptist Church. It was just, there was a stillness and a calmness that came over us as we were in the dark. That's what happens during times of revival. There is this quiet expectation of I'm hanging on every word that's coming from this book because God is speaking. That's what happens during times of revival. And you need to understand what's going on here. What are they reading? Why did it take them nine hours? They read from the book of the law of Moses. Anybody know what that is? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 50 chapters of Genesis, 40 chapters of Exodus, 27 chapters of Leviticus, 36 chapters of Numbers, and 34 chapters of Deuteronomy. All five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and nobody complained. You think maybe after Genesis? Okay, Ezra, we've had enough. We get the point. And then when you get to Leviticus, when you get to all those weird laws, okay, Ezra, we've had enough. For nine hours, they were attentive to the word of God. Now, you, you may ask the question, why? This wasn't a haphazard thing. What did they do? They built him a pulpit. They built him a pulpit and a platform tall enough to, to preach to 50,000 people. And you may ask the question, why all these guys with weird names on the stage with Nehemiah? I mean, he lists all these guys on the stage with him. Why list these guys? Think about it this way. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever thought about this. Most of you have never preached. Most of you probably never read the Word of God aloud. But think about this. For one man to read the Word of God aloud for nine hours without a PA system, that is exhausting. To 50,000 people, one person up there preaching for nine hours would keel over. So what does he have? He's got his pastoral team up there. What they probably did was these Levites or these men on the stage, they probably took turns reading from the Scriptures just because there was no amplification, no PA system. And so here's the first thing about revival. There's an insatiable hunger for God's word. People want the word of God. They can't get enough of God's word. They hang on every word. There's a stillness. There's a quietness. There's a hunger. We want the word. But here's the second. Here's the second thing. There was not only an insatiable hunger, there was an incredible submission to God's word. An incredible submission to God's word. 
What do the people do? Notice verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. They stood in honor of the reading of God's word. Now, we do that here. You just don't know you're doing it. After the first song, you're already standing. And normally one of our elders comes up and does our call to worship and we read scripture and you're already standing in honor of God's word. And we probably haven't done as good a job of this, but in the old days, they used to stand for the reading of God's word. And so when God's word's being read, they stand up. They stand up. There's a submission to the word of God. They're coming under its authority. Now, I've said this many times before. I understand where people come from when they say this. And I don't fault people for saying this. I just don't think they've, they've nuanced their wording exactly the way they should. But I've heard some people say, we just need to apply the Bible to our lives. And I understand what they mean, but there's something inherently wrong in that statement. We don't apply the Bible to our lives because what it means is our lives is of the authority. And if we don't like what the Bible says, we're just not going to apply it. My life becomes the authority and I can pick and choose what part of the Bible I want to apply to my life. What we should stay and said is, I'm going to adjust my life under the authority of the Word. This is the authority, and my life needs to adjust itself to whatever this says. And so there's a submission to the Word of God. And notice what they're doing. What are they doing? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6. After they've stand, stood there for nine hours, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And what are they doing? They're lifting up their, their hands. Now, now what's, what's the whole issue of lifting up their hands? In that culture and in our culture, it's an act of submission. It's an act of surrender. I surrender. It's like waving the white flag saying, I'm going to surrender to this word. I'm submitting myself under this word. That's why when we sing and we raise our hands, it's an act of surrender. We're saying, God, I surrender to you. God, I submit to you. You're the authority. I'm coming under you. I am surrendering to you. And not only, okay, they're standing, they're hungry, the word's being read, they're raising their hands, but look what happens next. What do they do next? And they bow their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. They ultimately got in a position of surrender. They are bowing on the ground. They are positioning themselves in prostration before God on the ground. And let me just ask you a simple question. Are we in times of revival today? Do we see this today? Do you see a widespread hunger and submission and a surrender, and a bowing to the authority of God and his scripture. Vance Havner, an old country preacher, said this, Sunday morning Christianity is the greatest hindrance to true revival. Now some people may say, Sean, it sounds like you're worshiping the Bible. You're elevating this Bible to such a position. You, you worship the Bible. You, you're placing such a high emphasis on the Bible. Let me just say this loud and clear. We are not worshiping the Bible. We are worshiping the God of the Bible, but how else would we know the God of the Bible unless we understood his word? God has given us an infallible treasure of glorious truth for us to submit ourselves under, and so one of the signs of revival is that this word becomes an authority again. Is this word an authority? I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about in our churches. Let me say this loud and clear. I've got a, loud and clear, a lot of loud and clear statements this morning, so here's my first loud and clear statement. I'm very, very concerned that in our churches today, there is a lack of authority of the Scriptures. In most churches, the Scripture is not even read. And if it's even read, sometimes the pastor will mention it once in his sermon, and then he'll jump off on a little tangent, and he'll never come back to the text. He'll never come under the authority of the text and it's a bunch of funny little stories without ever coming under the authority of the scripture no revival will ever come unless this becomes the authority again this has got to be the authority so so here's the third issue it kind of leads into the third issue number one there's an insatiable hunger number two there is a this 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 um this submission and number three there's the importance of preaching God's word. And I will go to my grave with this statement. There's been no period in church history or in biblical history where true revivals occurred 
when there hasn't been an elevated sense of preaching. When preaching is preeminent, when preaching is honored, when preaching is established, when preaching has a high place, God is pleased to use revival. Now, I don't know why preaching has fallen on hard times today. I've got some opinions about it. I think, and this is no disparaging against any pastor pastor in particular, but I think sometimes pastors are just lazy. They don't want to take the time to spend in the Word each week to delve into this text, to marinate into this text, to read from this text, to spend time in this text, so that when they come on a Sunday morning, it's not 15-minute sermonettes for Christianettes. It's what the Word says, not opinion of man. Some people have lost confidence in the power of the preached Word. They don't think it works anymore. Some pastors I talk to like, yeah, I don't really put a primacy on preaching because people are so technologically advanced. They're on Facebook all week. They're on Twitter all week. They're, they're, they're surfing the internet. They're watching TV. The last thing they want to do is hear the guy stand up for 45 minutes and talk out of the scriptures. So we don't, talk, we don't really do much about preaching. Let me just say this. You hear voices all week, don't you? What's the one thing you cannot get anywhere else in this world that you can get in church? You can get a transcendent experience with the living God through his word. You cannot get that anywhere else. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. With all the things that bombard me in the week, the last thing I want to do is come to a place where people tell me what I want to hear. I don't want to hear what I want to hear. I want to hear what God's word says. And so there's a primacy of preaching. Now here's the thing that happens. Here's the thing that happens. Ezra and the Levites engage in what we call expository preaching. Look at verse 7. All these men with weird names and the Levites, look at the end of verse 7. They helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, here's something interesting. These Levites are strategically placed out among the 50,000 people. Why in the world are these Levites strategically placed out there among the people? Here's what they do. They began to take people into smaller groups and they begin to explain the scriptures. Because here's the problem. Here's a huge problem. The Bible was written in Hebrew. Genesis through Deuteronomy was written in Hebrew. These Israelites had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years and they no longer knew Hebrew. All they knew was Aramaic. So the Levites had to translate from Hebrew to Aramaic to help them even understand. But not only that, what it says there is it says that they read from the book of the law clearly. That word clearly in the original text means they went paragraph by paragraph and they unpacked the meaning. It was nothing other than expository preaching. They read the text, they explained the text, and they applied the text. That's all I do here on Sunday mornings. I read the text, I explain the text, I apply the text, I bring another text to make sure that that it's the whole text and nothing but the text. That's exactly what they're doing here. What's preaching? It's a guy standing before God's people, opening up the scriptures, reading the text, explaining the text, applying the text, and leaving the results up to God. That's all preaching is, and that's what these guys are doing. They're going around into smaller groups, and what they're doing is they're helping people to understand it. They're giving the deeper meaning. They're saying, we've got to unpack this for the people. So Ezra has a preaching staff, if you will. He's the main preacher, but he sends these Levites out into the congregation to begin to to systematically teach them what the Scripture says. Again, are are we in a period of revival? Is there a hunger for the Word? Is there a submission to the Word? Is there an elevated preaching of the Word? Now think about Ezra for a moment. We haven't talked a lot about Ezra because we're in the book of Nehemiah, but Ezra had been on the scene for 12 years up to this point. 12 years. What had he been doing for those 12 years? Preaching, teaching, ministering, plodding along 12 years. Then, boom, all of a sudden, what happens? I woke some of you up. What happened? God brought revival in that instant. Now, if you're Ezra, you're probably thinking, man, this is amazing. I've been doing this for 12 years. All of a sudden, God brings revival. Let me just say this. Most pastors are on Ezra's first 12 years. Most pastors never get to experience revival. Most pastors are just plodding along. They're preaching. They're teaching faithfully week after week. They see some growth. They see some conversions. Most pastors I know have never experienced revival. But here's the one thing that gives me encouragement. When God does bring revival, he often brings it through preaching. 
So I can't control the revival. What I can control is the preaching. And when God's word is elevated and there's preaching, then we know that God can and may use that to bring about revival among his people. Now here's the amazing thing about what happens. What are these people doing? They're raising their hands in submission. They're bowing on the ground. They're saying amen. They're hungry. They go and grab the preacher and say, preach the word. They're standing for nine hours. They're learning the word of God. And what's their response to all of this? What's their ultimate response? Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What do they do? They begin crying. Now, we don't know why they're crying. It could be that I've never heard anything like this before. Or it could be, my goodness, I am so sinful, and this is the first time I've ever seen the gravity of my sin. For whatever reason, that word of God had laid them bare, and they are weeping. They are crying. The word impacted them. The entire nation was brought to tears over the reading and the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And then Ezra does something very strange here. He says, guys, don't weep. We'll get to that next week in chapter 10. This is a holy day. This is a holy day. This is a day where the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a holy day. Don't mourn. Let's let's celebrate the Feast of Booths, and then after that we'll have a solemn assembly. But today, the the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now here's an interesting thing about Sunday mornings. Should Sunday mornings be so and somber, and this is really just a sad state of affairs? You know the old Puritans of old used to say this? You could fast on any day of the week but Sunday. Why? Sunday is the Lord's day. And why do we celebrate Sunday on Sunday as opposed to Saturday? Because Sunday is the day Jesus did what? He rose from the tomb. So Sunday is a day of victory. Sunday is a day we gather in victory to celebrate the resurrected Christ. And it's a day of rejoicing. It's a day of joy. Now, sometimes we come in mourning and sometimes we have different feels to the worship service. But ultimately, Sunday morning is to be a day of joy because the Lord is risen. And that's what Nehemiah said. And Ezra say, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Go home and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, again, I'll ask the question, are we in a time of revival? Is there widespread hunger for God's word? Is there widespread submission to God's word? Is there the widespread preaching of God's word? Here's the fourth issue, and I think this is where the rubber meets the road. There's an immediate obedience to God's word. We can give lip service to God's word all we want, but until we obey it, we haven't done what God's called us to do. There's an immediate obedience. Let's continue to read verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses... Of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths or these little tabernacles during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them And made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in the courts, and in the courts of the houses of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to the day that the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the word, the rule. Now, the entire nation had just gathered for worship. It was a nine-hour worship service. The word of God was read. It was preached. It was explained. They bow in humble submission. They raise their hands in surrender. They are weeping. They are mourning. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah and Ezra say, don't. Don't mourn because today's a day of rejoicing. And what do they find out? They find as they read the Bible, hey, we're supposed to be celebrating a feast right here. We're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been disobedient. But I want you to notice a principle about revival that we cannot skip. We cannot skip this. Notice what it says in verse 13. The heads of the Father's houses went to Ezra and said, would you please teach us so we can go back and teach our families? Dads 
went to the pastors and said, would you please teach us so that we can teach our families? Here's the first principle of the revival that we see in this aspect. True revival comes when fathers are being fathers. When fathers are leading their households to raise up godly men and women. When God is using dads. I am unapologetic about this. And I will say this to my grave. God will not bring revival to this nation until dads step up to the plate. It's got to start with fathers. That's where it started here, with fathers, with dads. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to be chauvinistic. I'm not trying to be sexist or misogynist. I'm just saying that if you look at the scriptures, God is pleased to use men to lead their families. It's biblical. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. That, that, that word diligently means to, to shoot an arrow and like have that arrow press into your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Dads, are we teaching our children the ways of the Lord? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here's the interesting thing about this. The heads of the family took the initiative and said, okay, teach us, Ezra, teach us. And they became to find out, we've been disobedient. There's a festival, there's the Feast of Tabernacles that we're supposed to celebrate. And if God said to do it, let's do it. Let's, let's respond immediately. Now, it could have been very interesting because back in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, God commanded them to, to build these little booths and to go live on their roofs and put palm branches and, and basically live in a tent for eight days. Now, if you're an Israelite, and I know this is a weird culture, but, but how many of you want to just go out and live in a tent for eight days? Some of you are raising your hand. You like the outdoors. Nobody stood up and said, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Nobody went to Ezra and said, are you joking? God said, what? What did they say? God said it. That settles it. There's no I believe it in there. It's just God said it. That settles it. Let's obey immediately. So what do they do? They go out and they live in these, these temporary shelters. Now, revival and obedience are very intrinsically linked. Let me give to you what A.W. Tozer has said about revival. A.W. Tozer said, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Do we obey the word? Are we hungry for the word? Do we submit to the word? Do we love the word to be preached? And then do we obey it? Now, what did these little temporary shelters remind the Israelites of? Why live in these little booths? Well, it reminded of their days in the wilderness. When God had delivered them from Egyptian slavery and they're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, what did God do? God provided for them. God sent the manna. God sent the quail. God sent the water from the rock. God provided for their every need. And so when they went and lived in these booths, it was a visual reminder to them that we can get rid of all the things that tie us down, all of our material wealth, all of our materialism, all of our stuff. It doesn't really matter. What really matters is that we're going to submit ourselves to God who has promised to take care of us. And so here's another issue about revival. Not only do dads lead in revival, but number two, stop becomes unimportant in times of revival we are so in love with our stuff our materialism our wealth consuming stuff it's so easy for us to trust in our stuff and when they go out and live in these booths they're saying we're not trusting in our stuff we're trusting in god who's our provider we're trusting in god who is our provider notice verse 18 though what continues to happen what's central how did it start with God's word. What continues to happen? Look at verse 18. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. It wasn't just a one-time, well, we kind of just give lip service to the word of God. 
it was a recovery. It, it, it sank deep into the people. Dads got a hold of it. The people got a hold of it. They obeyed immediately. There was this widespread revival. But I want you to notice something crucial that happened in the midst of all this. You may ask the question, well, that's all fine and great, Sean, that there's this recovery of the authority of God's word. And as I was praying this morning in my, in my quiet time, I was just thinking about that statement that Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is there joy in obedience? You betcha. But what are we fooled to think about? We think we're going to find joy in other things. So what we do is we go to other things that we think are going to promise us joy and we engage in those things and afterwards we just feel nothing but empty and we need to realize that the true joy comes in what? The Word. Notice verse 12. What does verse 12 say? And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the word that was declared to them. They understood the word. There was great rejoicing. What does verse 17 say? And there was very great rejoicing. Back there earlier in verse 9, it says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoicing. Now, does God's word bring joy? Yes. I want you to do me a favor and turn to Psalm 119 for just a few moments. I didn't say, does the word of God bring you happiness? I said, does it bring you joy? Now, I want you to see here through Psalm... Now, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, so we're not, obviously not going to read every, every verse. But what I want to show you in Psalm 119 is the psalmist's attitude towards the Bible. What is the psalmist's attitude toward the Bible? What, how did he feel about the Bible? So Psalm 119, and I want you to see a repeated theme here, a word that's used over and over again about God's word. And as we read this, I want you to, to ask the question to your own heart, do I feel this way about the Bible? Again, we're not worshiping the Bible, we're worshiping the God of the Bible, but notice how the, the psalmist talks about this. Psalm 119, let's look at verses 14 and 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Okay, let's look at verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Look at verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Look at verse 77. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Look at verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Then look at verse 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. And then look at verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. You see a theme there? What word is repeated over and over again? Delight. He's saying, my joy, my love, my delight is your word. I love this word. I hunger for this word. I have an insatiable hunger for this word. I have an incredible submission to this word. I love the importance of the preaching of this word, and I want to immediately obey this word. This word is the joy of my heart. You know times of revival have come when the whole nation, the whole town, the whole of God's people stand up and say, that's true of me. Again, are we living in times of revival? No. And you may ask yourself a question. I, I don't have this joy for God's word that you're talking about, Sean. I don't have this delight. I don't have this hunger. What, what should you do? Pray for it. Beg God to give it to you. Say, God, give me a hunger for your word. And I guarantee you, and I can't guarantee you because only God's sovereign over this, but I would say this. It's, think about the impact. 
If every single one of us in this room were praying, God, give me a hunger for your word, not only to know it, but to immediately obey it and come under its authority, just think of the impact that would happen when 300 people begin to immediately obey and have a hunger for God's word. That would just change things right then and there. And then think what God can do in his sovereignty to bring about revival. So begin to be praying about having a hunger and a desire for the authority and the submission and the obedience to God's word. I don't think revival will happen. As a matter of fact, I'll say this strongly. I don't believe revival will happen apart from a total surrender to the authority of this word. And where does it start? We can get mad at the big bad world out there that doesn't believe the Bible. I don't really care about that right now. I know they don't believe the Bible. I know they're atheists. I know they're pagans. I understand that. What concerns me more deeply is people that confess the name of Christ and don't give this word the authority due its, 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 its authority. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want us to pray. Not necessarily for revival. I think that's important to pray for revival. But I think first and foremost, we need to pray for a recovery a recovery of the hunger and the submission and the obedience to this word of God. And maybe you've been waffling. Maybe you're one that gives lip service to the word of God, but you don't obey it. Or you pick and choose which parts you want to believe or obey. And you're not living under the authority of it. It's a time to repent. It's a time for me to repent. We live in such a wicked, wacky, postmodern world where every truth is relative. There's no absolute truth. Your truth is my truth, is his truth, is her truth. That sometimes as Christians, we can be drowning in this filth and not realize that God has spoken. And he's spoken through his word. Would we be a people who say, God, come speak to us. We are hungry for your word. Spend some time in prayer this morning. Father, we want to be humbled as your people. Forgive us for pride in our hearts and pride in our lives when we want to be the authority when we want to be the captain of our own ship, when we want to be in the driver's seat, when we want to be on the throne. And Father, forgive us for thinking that that brings joy. We may think it brings joy, but it's a fleeting joy that doesn't last. Father, help us to to realize that true joy, the joy that, that comes as our strength, is the type of joy that comes in obedience, immediate obedience. Father, where we don't negotiate, we don't haggle, we don't dispute, we don't second guess, but when you say it, we say, yes, Lord. We're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers also. Father, I'm afraid we have too many hearers of the word and not enough doers in our churches. Father, those of us that have come years and years to church and we've heard thousands of sermons and we've been to thousands of Bible studies and we've we've read the Bible and we walk out never changed because we're not doers of the word. We're just hearers. And James says it's like we're fooling ourselves. It's like we're looking in a mirror and forget what we look like. Father, would you give us a hunger for your word, an insatiable hunger. Father, would you give us that amazing submission to your word? And Father, would you give us an immediate obedience to your word? And would you bring revival? Help us to realize it starts and it ends with your word as central. May it never be said, Father, that Emmanuel Baptist Church is a church that doesn't believe or stand upon your word. Father, we will go to our graves standing upon the authority of this truth. 
And Father, if I'm the lone person out there in this culture, I pray I'm not. But Lord, whatever our culture says, whatever technology or the media or movies says, or whatever the school system says, or whatever the government says, or whatever any entity out there says, may we be a people that says, as for me and my house, we will stand upon the truth of God's word above all. Let the persecution come, let the arrows come. We will not back down because your word is powerful and we will stand under its authority till our dying day. May we never be a church that compromises on your word. Father, if there's anybody in this room this morning that's never trusted Christ alone for salvation, they've never raised their hands in surrender to King Jesus. They never cried out for mercy to King Jesus to save them from their sin. They've never repented of that sin. Holy Spirit, would you work in their heart this morning to show them that they are separated from a holy God and need salvation. That their salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ and today can be their day of salvation if they would just repent and believe in you alone, Jesus. May that happen this morning. May there be many here today that would bow their knees to King Jesus for the very first time and confess him as Savior and Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you are here this morning and you have some questions about what it means to follow God's word or you have questions about what it means to have a relationship with Christ, I invite you to come after the service and come down and and just talk to one of us. We'll be available here after the service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.